This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. My guest on the podcast today is Andreas Kleve, CEO of Corti. We have an abundance of uh, CRM tools and social media tools, but these people who we rely on like the worst days of our lives, they usually, as as far as we have seen, they could get a lot more attention from technology makers. We've left these people who are doing emergency dispatching diagnosing or detecting critical situations blindfolded so they can't usually see the patients. They can only hear what's being told about the situation, which is super hard, even for the best, most educated professionals. If they can see the idea of having a co-pilot and they, they found it interesting, then it's worth doing. If you really want to bring 10x value to a use case, I think you need to go quite deep and really understand it well. A lot of machine learning is getting a bit generic in the more horizontal approach to creating value. And I think those who create the most value are quite good at going very deep. If you really want to create a competitive advantage in machine learning, if it's going to be a core of your business, I think you should be very aware of using API-based solutions, which you can retrain and bias towards your data. One should be very aware of what it actually means to compete using machine learning, which is something very different than utilizing machine learning as a part of your competitive edge. This is Andreas. He's the CEO and co-founder of Corti, a startup from Copenhagen that delivers technology that enables humans to do more. And their mission is dear to my heart. They imagine a future whereby all medical professionals can be augmented with artificial intelligence to better diagnose patients, reduce uncertainty, and eliminate fatal errors. Andreas leads a team of multidisciplinary experts from organizations such as NASA, Apple and IBM Watson to build powerful intelligent augmentation software for the next generation of healthcare providers. And their first product, Corti, is a digital assistant that leverages deep learning to help medical personnel make critical decisions in the heat of the moment. It is this product I wanted to know more about, hence it became the topic of this podcast. And during this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, what it requires to create human-machine combos that can produce exponential value. Secondly, why most value comes from going deep rather than going broad. Thirdly, why smart execution is even more important than the original smart idea to make it obtainable and accessible to the people who need it most. To start the whole thing off, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Andreas Klemen. I'm the, 
the CEO of uh, Corti, which is a Danish-based artificial intelligence company that's working on building software that augments medical professionals as they diagnose patients. Okay. So it's about software that is helping with diagnosing. So, yeah. So, so what we do is we, uh, we listen in on uh, patient-doctor conversations or conversations between medical professionals and, and patients. And then we try to help them pick up the different signals and alerts that's hidden in the conversation that might not be apparent to a human to help the medical professional come to the right conclusion, uh, preferably faster and preferably with uh, a higher precision. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It looks like something simple, but potentially it's quite big. What is your view about the need for this in the world? So ultimately, I think one of the main thesis, uh, thesis we had behind uh, Corti was ultimately we had built a startup before doing uh, conversation tech before to, to the healthcare space. And what we saw was ultimately humans in this setting or, or people in this setting, professionals, uh, have such a hard time keeping up with all their tasks. So all the time we have an increasing amount of work, we have an increasing amount of, of uh, influx of patients, and we actually also see uh, uh, increased expectations from the patient side on what they're able to get, get delivered uh, and how fast they'll get it. So the whole whole idea of building technology that's built into a desktop or a, a workflow where they need to end up at a computer just seemed so rigid to us. So our last startup was about that too. And and I think what, what, what Cordy is trying to do is is to build sort of a, a, a symbiosis between the, the medical professional and, and, and Cordy, since Cordy isn't built to replace anybody, it's built to amplify. So we, we listen in on the conversation. That means we wait for the conversation to start and it's guided by the professional. And they'll start asking questions based on their profound knowledge and, and, and education. And then we'll do what computers do best. And that's uh, computing uh, a large set of data that it never forgets and try to look for angles that might seem obscure to the single human being that might only have heard or seen or, or participated in a finite amount of conversations, whereas a computer can store and analyze millions. And to do that smart, we, we use machine learning since it's a good technology for, for trying to look for stuff that isn't apparent. I agree. So what is the use case for this? And by the way, is the solution already live? <clears throat> so it's running in the background as we were building the strategy for how they'll work together. So, yeah. so as you can imagine, one thing is that we're quite good at doing all the machine learning and it actually works very well, which we've proven it does. But the important part is that it actually makes the human workflow more proficient. So what we're doing right now is working together with the actual professionals who are a part of our first use case I can talk a bit about afterwards to find out how exactly will it be valuable and how will it learn. Since ultimately what we're doing is we're looking for outcomes that's incredibly important to find and preferably fast. But the computer isn't as binary as you would think since it builds on confidence. So it has a confidence score of a certain output. And that confidence okay. score changes with the conversation. So we're, we're usually never 100% sure. We're always uh, somewhere between uh, random and, and very, very sure. And how do, you, how do you convey that to somebody who's busy, who has a lot of screens, a lot of information uh, in a meaningful way? That's what we're building right now. Interesting. So this is um, the people that are using it. Are people that are in hospitals, or is it also your uh, your day to day? What is it? Day to day doctor? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully at some point it will be both, uh, and a lot more. Hopefully also. What we started looking for was sort of the use case where we would actually be able to measure the impact of having a, an AI listening in and trying to assist the medical professionals, since ultimately that's that's what we do. And then we found that in the pre-hospital setting, that would be 
everything that happens, of course, before a potential hospitalization. Uh, there were some quite good use cases where it was very time limited. And one of them was detecting uh, cardiac arrests on live emergency calls. That would be your yeah. 112, 191 calls. And there, there we, we learned of a use case where uh, a sudden cardiac arrest happens outside of a hospital and you have only about 10 minutes to make sure they get the right treatment, which would, would, would be proper CPR or a defibrillator that actually helps them uh, readjust the heart, heart rhythm, kick it, kick it in again. And ultimately, that can only happen if they actually end up detecting it. So the best 911, 112 agents in the world are able to hit uh, detection detection rates around 70%. So 73 was what we benchmarked against, which is astonishing and very, very high. That means in 73 out of 100 cases where somebody calls about somebody in their proximity who's feeling bad or, or actually is experiencing something that looks like a cardiac arrest, they end up detecting it. And, and that's actually quite high since we as bystanders, like the people who experience somebody else having a cardiac arrest, uh, might be quite biased and give wrongful information since it's of course happening in a rush. So what we set out to was see if we could uh, decrease the amount of cases where it wasn't detected, where it actually should have been. Yeah, true. So where typically where you get a one plus one is three uh, type of effect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So one of the cases was uh, a woman calling in uh, her husband had fallen down a ladder from, from the, the roof. He was cleaning the pipes and, he fell down, was, was lying on the floor. She rushed out. He was lying all weird. His shoulder was, was dislocated. And ultimately, uh, she called, of course, the emergency service, said, hey, my husband, uh, he needs uh, emergency medical attention. He's broken his back, and you can't. So he, he, he's definitely he's broken his back. I can hear a rattling sound of his voice, but he's broken his back. Yeah. And the pro- protocol there meant that based on what she kept describing, there would be a potential for a cardiac arrest, but she was very adamant about describing features of this situation that looked like a broken back or neck, which can be quite uh, difficult to move around since it can, can create an even worse situation. So they agreed on ultimately uh, on the dispatcher or the emergency side that, that letting him stay uh, in this position just to make sure he was able to breathe. And, and ultimately, they did all the right things. Everybody agreed, but ultimately, uh, he actually fell only because he had a cardiac arrest while on the roof, uh, which ultimately was the case. So that was sort of the situation where, as a dispatcher, you can be as qualified as you can be, and you can ask all the right questions, but if you don't pick up uh, or get the right feedback from the bystander, it could be quite hard. True. But, we, but we as a, or our system may have heard a million calls compared to an average human, which probably have heard thousands and thousands, but we can actually remember millions of calls. So we can pick up signals that might seem very minor, and put them into the context of the present call. And there, based on whatever it might be, the breathing patterns, the questions, we can actually alert them to something that might seem very inobvious, but based on all of the historic data, seems quite potentially threatening. Yeah, and at the end, that's about creating a better chance of, uh, of, of having the right diagnose in the first place, but also being able to act faster, which of exactly. course can be, can be uh, the difference between Something very bad and something very good. <laughs> exactly. And wow. ultimately, ultimately, we'll never be better than the dispatchers. That, that's not the point. But together with the dispatchers, we can be, be quite powerful. And I, I think one, one of the things that, that leaves me most astonished is that ultimately we have so much great technology today, but ultimately we, it, a lot of the technology and the attention flows in, in very conform directions. So we have an abundance of uh, uh, CRM tools and social media tools, but these people who we rely on like the worst days of our lives, they usually 
as we, far as we have seen, it could get a lot more attention from technology makers since ultimately we, we rely on them sort of as a backbone, right? Exactly. That's funny. I had a dis- another discussion with um, a person from, from the Seattle area that's uh, working for Global Good, and he said the, the amount of money that's being invested in research to, uh, to fight uh, the biggest diseases mm. are all about diseases that are popular in the, in the, in the developed world, mm. whereby only a fraction of that is actually focused on what is happening in the, in the, yeah, the, the, the underdeveloped world, the, the mm. third world countries. Where the impact could potentially be far, far bigger. And this is exactly the similar type of a, the type of a example. So, looking at your at at, at your product, the moment you've you've sorted this out, how would you scale this around the world? How would would it be a difficult thing to do? Oh, probably, yeah. That's what we're working on right now. Uh, what we've done is we've tried to make it make it as simple as possible for emergency departments to try to to test the technology locally, since ultimately. Like any other uh, medical product, we feel still it needs, of course, the, the medical evidence. That's why we're publishing a series of papers this spring to, to get, get it peer-reviewed and get it in the right circles. And so ultimately, every medical product, of course, should be peer-reviewed and validated. And then on the engineering side of things, we actually build a small device that you plug into your phone or to a microphone, and then it can start listening in on any kind of conversations. So it's actually able to do all of what we do on our big fancy servers. It's actually able to do on-premise anywhere in the world. And then you'll live in real time get its feedback on, on the device. So we're going we're gonna to offer the solution to a host of 911 and 112s to, to get them to yeah. test the solution and prove how much value it will create. Yeah, because at the end, it's all about creating trust, right? Are there any regulations that, that sit, well, that work against this? Because, I mean, if you look at medicines and how these are developed, they, before you, well, you might have a good medicine and it works, but before mm. it's approved, it can take years. I, I, I think still we're, we're, as I said before, we're just a, a support tool. We try to stay a support tool. We are not trying to say, sort of, this is the end diagnostics, but we say this is the probability of a scenario you should consider. Yeah. I think technology like this in artificial intelligence is still very young in the wild. So we've been talking about it in labs since the 70s and, and we have seen all seen movies where it actually works, right? But ultimately in the wild, it's very young still. So although we could do a lot more and our technology could be used to an even greater extent, ultimately, I think it's about taking it one step at a time and being in, in constant dialogue with the actual user and, and their stakeholders. And so ultimately, we need to build trust as a society around implementing these sort of solutions. And, and that's gonna take some time. So I think th- this kind of development is also for, for the patient developers. Yeah, exactly. So explain, can you explain the journey from the aha moment that you had at some point in time and up to the point where it was released? So what steps did you go through? What did you learn? So what did we learn from the aha moment? That was so much, I think, think ultimately what we learned is I think one of the important parts was, of course, to always make sure that we remember that who we're dealing with, since I think there is a bit of a tendency in technology today to feel that technology is sort of the, the most important part of any project. And I think we, we spend a lot of time in our team realigning on the fact that we're trying to help these people who are actually there and doing the important job. And I think, think keeping focused on how well they're doing and how we could, could, could keep, keep sort of helping them has been a major thing for us and also how much power there is in getting to work very closely with them. So ultimately, I think we spent a lot of time out there in the field trying to understand it better, 
working with the data, uh, building it around sort of scenarios that we couldn't even have imagined. But, but I think there's so much power in what's already been doing out there, but it's not being distributed this information and it's not easily obtainable. So actually taking risk to be able to work with these people on our end has been sort of making sure that we financed the project for, for years to make sure that we got it here and yeah. kept making sure that we kept aligning on sort of what, how will it work in the end since ultimately it's going to fill, fill an important, important part in, in the everyday lives with these people. So I, I think working closely with them, that's been important. Always being, being humble about the job and, and making sure that you always realign on sort of what was the goal and how are we actually utilizing the facilities and data we're, we're, we're getting offered. And I think that that's sort of what has aligned our team and enabled us to hire some, some pretty brilliant people. Yeah. So, so that's been 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 worrying. That's been important parts of it, but it's also yeah. To outsiders, it's generic for like you need to listen to your customers. Of course you do, but it, but it's it's embedding that in everything you do is is the hard part, right? All the small actions you do every day. That's sure. That's where it's hard, and then I think it's making it obtainable. So how do you actually use this technology? There's so much good technology that only works on big GPU clusters, right? So we spend a lot of time and money on building this device to make it uh, obtainable, accessible to people out there. I think that that's yeah. that's a big gamble on us, but I think ultimately that's our job as technologists. It's not just figuring out a solution, but actually making it available. Yes. So, in that journey, what what type of challenges did you face? What were the top three challenges that uh, that came across? So, I think one of the the challenges we faced was that we based our uh, machine learning product on prior research, uh, very high quality research, but the demands of using data for a machine learning project, cleaning it and preparing it, is definitely harder than you would think, and there's a long way to go from from regular human-driven research to what's needed for a, for a machine learning project to really prosper. Yeah. So cleaning data was big learning, how to do that at scale, be smart about it, faster about it. We build a whole pipeline and software for it. Then after that, I think the, the, the major learning was, of course, the amount of data you need to make an impact. And if you're solving something uh, adequately hard, it's also going to be an adequately uh, hard job to keep the solution elegant. But I think, think what we've done is we've built a cluster of models. So it's not a single model, but it's uh, several models working in, in, in a system together that actually works. And that's, that's created kind of a demand for a very multidisciplinary team. So I think keeping open to, to, to keeping it multidisciplinary, since it's going to be hard uh, to keep it elegant, I think that's, that's the first big learning. Yeah. So you said there's a lot of data already available. What, what type of data are you talking about? I mean, are these, these calls, for example... Um, at 911 and 112, and, and, uh, and the, depending on the country where you are, are these recorded and available for uh, as a test environment? Yeah. It's what we do that we deploy our, our research team locally on-premise. So we work okay. with at the local premise to not move the data. So it's, of course, not available, and we're bound by a lot of rules in the partnership, sure. which, which, of course, is fine. But they need to record the data, of course, to do quality assurance and to make sure they have... a an idea of, of what's going on. So we work on the recordings locally at their premise and build the models there. Yeah. And these, there's, there's no such thing in the world whereby these, these recordings are, are captured centrally, like at the national level maybe, or even, even broader. There's a lot of research projects that span across states, nations, or counties. And there is countries where they're more liberal about creating research projects like ours on top of data sets. I think especially we can look to Singapore, who's really... Uh, revolutionizing the whole public-private partnerships and data, but but the majority of places, um, you need to know how to 
to map the data. You need to know who to, to work with. And then you could get quite far and get quite big data sets, but, but it's very much of a, an intuition you build for working in the healthcare space. Interesting. So, I mean, the solution is, is it live already? Yeah, it's live running in the background. So it's not intervening, but it's just learning. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's live. And, and what are the first results that people come up with? I mean, what are the first reactions <laughs> that your customers are talking about? So results we're going to publish very soon in a, in a major paper. So I can't say numbers, but the reactions we're getting, of course, is, and I think that's a funny discrepancy. A lot of people ask me sort of, ah, oh, but weren't everybody like super scared that you're going to replace them? And ultimately, I think, of course, there was a healthy skepticism, but the actual feedback we got wasn't like, when are you going to replace us? It was like, how does it work? How can I utilize it? When is it going to be there? Since ultimately, I think, again, we've left these people who are doing emergency dispatching diagnosing or detection critical situations blindfolded. So they can't usually see the patients. They can only hear what's being told about the situation, which is super hard, yeah. uh, even for the best, most educated professionals. And giving them some kind of tool and feedback and co-piloting as they're doing it to them is sensible and, and worthwhile, which made it very worthwhile for us hearing their stories about how they end up treating a gunshot wound, putting that, that call down and then picking up a phone call afterwards where there, there it's a lady giving birth to a baby in the backseat of a cab. And after that, it's a cardiac arrest. Like that's, that's their job. That's totally amazing to us. Yeah. But it's also, so that what made it, made it really worthwhile since ultimately if they can see the idea of having a co-pilot and they, they found it interesting, then it was worth doing. That's ultimately the feedback we get most. Cool. I mean, do you see any broader application to this? I mean, I was, I was give you, to give you an example, I was talking to, to someone that's in, the, uh, in a different space, but um, it's a company that helps project managers predict the potential result of a project. And mm -hmm. while that was initially the use case, and that was, that's something that they have developed and, and they're currently tuning that, now they start to see, because of the, algori the algorithms that they have created, that there are more use cases alike in different, in different areas of, well, of, a, of an organization. So they move from one role to the other now. Mm. I think personally, from a commercial perspective, I would be weary knowing machine learning and the inner workings of it, being too horizontal in the commercial approach, since ultimately, if you really want to bring 10x value to a use case, I think you yeah. need to go quite deep and really understand it well. And I think a lot of machine learning is getting a bit generic in the, the more horizontal approach to creating value. And I think those who create the most value are quite good at going very deep. So I think we are going very deep in patient medical professional or doctor conversations. Of course. That's what we're going to do, do well. But of course, augmentation as a whole, like the idea of having the Iron Man's Jarvis listening or you know, whatever you do, I think that's going to be a prevalent theme in technology for, for many years to come. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you, if you look at yeah, where you are today, what, what are your... What are your next next steps to achieve? What are the big the big milestones that you see in front of you in the next year? So the biggest milestone right now for us is we're working on our big medical paper release, which is going to be a huge study of more than 150,000 uh, emergency calls, <laughs> where we test and test and test and prove uh, with every statistical model available the actual output and uh, proficiency of the models, which is at this point looking extremely interesting. So that's, that's a major thing for us. And then we're rolling the technology out together with uh, partners, which we'll soon publish. That's going to be helping us making it available to a host of states in the U.S., which is going to be our, our big thing this year. Okay. So it's the, your, your, first, your first focus is to move out of Denmark into, into the U.S.? 
yeah, we actually worked with a U.S. partner in almost from the start. So it's yeah. it's always been been the idea of seeing sort of if you look at one one two in Copenhagen, they're not directly competing with nine one one the big American cities, for for example, since ultimately they're not competing for customers. So it's a great space to work in since they're actually very open to knowledge sharing, which makes yeah. our job incre- increasingly interesting since what if we could transfer the best part of the diagnostic process from Copenhagen in the, in the fields where we are really, really good and yeah. give that learning, not the data, but give the learning to the cities in the U.S. where they're having the most trouble and vice yeah. versa, take the best part of what we know from the U.S. and bring it back to Europe. Then we will see the, the machine learning models actually pollinating each other helping the dispatchers. And that's sort of our vision. That, that seems very, very likable. Technically, it's feasible. And I think as we're doing that, we're going to see it branch out to different parts of the medical space. We'd love to be in hospitals. We'd love to make help the, the doctor, secretary, the doctor, the ambulances. There's, there's so many places where we could be of benefit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So since my, my, my primary target group is, uh, is ISVs, uh, software development companies, mm. what advice would you give ISVs um, yeah, like peers in your in your fields when they want to start looking into uh, working with artificial intelligence and these type of technologies what mm-hmm. what are the top three things they should do or avoid <laughs> they should spend a uh, disproportional amount of time cleaning data and be very adamant about what they want to 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 be able to do based on the data uh, to make sure they have all the right features and the appropriate data set I think a lot of people are underestimating that then I think if you really want to create a competitive advantage in machine learning, if it's going to be a core of your business, I think you should be very aware of using uh, API-based solutions, which you can't retrain and bias towards your data. So if you want to be very good at giving social media recommendations, but you're using a very generic data set, you're going to get a quite generic output. But if you want to do it for, for a niche group and, and you want to have a deep impact on them, you're probably going to need another data and you're probably going to need to bias the model towards the data you're actually training on. And that can be very hard on a lot of the generic horizontal models out there, even the, from, the, from the big guys. So I think one should be very aware of what it actually means to compete using machine learning, which is something very different than utilizing machine learning as a part of your competitive edge. Cool. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, that's, that's wise advice. So once this is published, what would be the big ask you would like to ask the audience to get help yourself? Oh, that's a great question. Of course, I'd love to know more about in which situations in life uh, where you're in- interfacing the healthcare space uh, would you be most interested to see a human-computer partnership? I agree. Let's get a good discussion going on on that and uh, and see if there's even more good ideas uh, spinning up from this. Yeah. Thank amazing. you very much for your um, for your time. This was really inspiring. I think it's uh, it's a great solution and uh, yeah, potentially, of course, making a lot of good impact. Uh, around the world. Thanks. Thank you so much. And great podcast. Thank you, Andreas. And to everybody else, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor today to speak to Andreas Kleve, CEO and co-founder of Corti. You can find more on Andreas in a variety of ways. First of all, Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Andreas Kleve. Obviously, you can find him on LinkedIn. But the other thing is to go to their website and to see what their product and their company is all about. Their website can be found at www.corti.ai The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. 
It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.